Jeremy, great to have you. Where you, you. Oh, well, do you want to use this one? It's more important that you're heard. She's loud. Yeah, more important that you're heard than me. You lived in Dulwich for a while. I did. And, and, and then you left. We left. But not to Yorkshire. Not to Yorkshire. Oh, dear. Just up the road, the elephants and cuts. Oh, all right, OK. Are houses cheaper there? Uh, yes. Oh, OK. <laughs> Good move. All right. And I'm interested in the knighthood. Do you mind me asking you about this? Um, how did it feel with the Queen about to chop off your head? With the sword. Well, it's the ears you have to watch, actually. <laughs> oh, is it all right? Yeah, <laughs> right. Each side. And was it Her Majesty who knighted you? Yes, yes. yes. What, what was it like? Tell us. You know, my invitation to be knighted got lost in the post. <laughs> so I probably <laughs> never know. <laughs> well, it, it's all very highly organised. Uh, but if you're a judge, then a high court judge, then you get invited and you get basically a ten minutes or quarter an hour with the Queen on your own because you're one of Her Majesty's judges right so Nikwedi tells you what to do and you, you wander in uh, and bow and you sit down and uh, actually first of all she knights you that's, that's what she so, so you wander up and you kneel down and she does the appropriate thing then you sit down and you have a chat and the etiquette of course is that you can't be- begin the conversation so she has to begin every topic of conversation and you answer her questions uh, and she's very expert at it because she's done it with yes. thousands of people I suppose uh, and so you have a little chat and then when she's had enough she rings a bell oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> please get rid of this man <laughs> is that right are you allowed to tell us what she asked you about um, most of the conversation I had a very interesting conversation about were criminals different from ordinary people. Oh, really? Uh, and she was very interested at the time because you'll recall that uh, Toby Martin, do you remember? I think I've got I do, yes, the farmer. East Anglian farmer. Yes. Yeah. And he had shot yeah. a burglar who yes. was running away at the time uh, in the back. In fact, he'd been sitting on the stairs waiting with his gun. And the, uh, but she felt some sympathy for him because, of course, she had a man a lot of her bed for three quarters of an hour, yeah. completely undetected by the house uh, <laughs> authorities. Mm-hmm. And she obviously had felt pretty insecure mm-hmm. and sympathised, therefore, with, with the farmer in question. So we had a bit of a chat about Was she tempted to shoot him in the back? <laughs> well, she, she didn't tell you how didn't have the sword. <laughs> so there was little she could do. But um, um, she did really well, didn't she? She kept him talking. Yes, she did. Three quarters That's of right. Uh, until someone eventually came in. <laughs> did she ask any questions, I don't know, such as... If my husband caused an accident... (laughs) 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 No, all right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, Fascinating. And she literally rang a bell and you were ushered away. Amazing. Have you been in touch since? (laughs) (laughs) The one and only touch. Is it? All right. uh, Wonderful. Um, And you, you, you were knighted because of services to legal... Work or, or because of the service I was about to do. Oh, so right, it was okay. In hope, rather than really? by way yes. of reward. Amazing. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. and, one and of Her Majesty's judges has to have some sort of moniker. And your wife, do you now call her Lady, or do you. She um, is. 
Lady Cornelia. And is that what you call her? I call her Lady C, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe that was the 1960s, because that's not the very Let's not go down. <laughs> <laughs> All right, wonderful. And she is here. Welcome. There you are. It's, it's really lovely to see you. Um, so tell us about your, your legal work. Um, you, you mentioned this one case. There must be some sort of highlights. That you, When you look back on your years as a High Court judge, you think, oh, wow, wasn't that a case? And, uh, are there some that you can mention to us? Well, a lot of them are very grisly. And the ones that interest most people here are murders. And people are much more interested in that sort of stuff than in the commercial stuff that I do, right. which is really my specialism. So uh, in the commercial court, I'll decide cases involving many millions and the decisions down to me uh, between banks and oil companies and uh, hedge funds and all that sort of thing. And on the other hand, I would do serious crime so mostly murders but other high profile criminal things as well um, so for a while I was known as the jigsaw judge because I did a series of murders where the bodies were chopped into small pieces oh, well. <laughs> amazing so I can tell you the people ready for this yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the canapes have settled <laughs> right. well if you imagine a security guard outside an office block and he's standing there minding his own business when he sees a bird fly overhead and drop something he looks up what that is he wanders across and has a look and it's a thumb uh, and uh, he reports this to the police and the police are able in fact to trace whose thumb it is because that person was known to them from their oh, right. previous inquiries and he's a man of course who has been murdered huh? and uh, uh, they're able to trace the, the history he'd been reported as missing and so on and so forth huh? uh, and they work backwards and eventually they come to uh, the, the bottom line story and did they find his body? Uh, <coughs> no uh, what had happened was that his body had been uh, initially cut in two and carted out of a flat in a carpet, taken down literally to the butchers, oh. put into small pieces. The sausages. And dropped. <laughs> so all the parts went into the Thames and a seagull had picked one. Oh, I see. And took it back to within about a mile of the place where the events took place. Really? Yeah. And did they find the culprits? They did in the end, yes. And you tried them? I did. Are they in prison still? Uh, they certainly are, yes. Amazing. Are. Absolutely fact. And, and Jeremy, at night, we, you know, you, you, whatever time it is, you, you dismiss the court for the, for the day. Does this go over and over in your mind? No. You can switch off? Well, pretty, pretty much, I think. You, you get inured to it. Yeah. You know, as a, a surgeon doesn't isn't troubled by blood, <coughs> so I guess a, a judge is not too troubled by all the misery he sees round about. Do you ever feel the wrong person was found guilty? Uh, hasn't happened with any of the cases I've been involved in, in my opinion. Do you ever feel I was too lenient or too severe in the punishment I meted out? Uh, there have been occasions where the Court of Appeal I thought I was <laughs> <laughs> too, too severe. Too severe. But not, not very often. 
No, all right. Amazing. Like not being found out too often. <laughs> it's remarkable because we don't norm... Well, some of these people may meet judges, but most of us don't. And, um, but, um, uh, you know, it, 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 it just seems... I suppose it's a very... It's, it's a mystical world because of the wig and the gowns and the... The sort of bowing and the honour and respect and esteem that we give to judges <clears throat> when they come into court. D- does that impact you in any way? Uh, there's a, a disease known as judgeitis, which is all about people becoming too self-important. Yes, that's what I'm really asking. Yes, you can see <laughs> and I suffer from it. But the, the best antidote is to have children. <laughs> they, they soon pick it up. They do. And <laughs> uh, one other question about your your work as a judge: Did you ever nod off during a case? No, no. I used to have a very sharp pencil, which I would dig into my leg. <laughs> <laughs> did you really? Absolutely. Have you ever thought of writing your autobiography? Uh, no. I think that would be a terrible mistake. Oh, I think it'd be very interesting. <laughs> so, so w- was your father a lawyer? He was a solicitor. Was yes. he? So you're yeah. brought up with with cases and stories being told. Yes, his his practice was not a litigious practice. So he, uh, all right, was not it's a conveyancing of this sort of, this sort of well, thing. He did a, a bit of everything. He did, did he? Yes. Yeah. All right. And uh, tell us about your home. What was it like as you were growing up? Brothers, sisters, three, two brothers, so three sons. Uh, did you all become lawyers? Uh, we did. Did you really? <laughs> how interesting. Yeah. And uh, happy home. Yes, very happy home. Christian home? Yes. So you were taught to go to church? Yes, brought up in a Christian home. And did you resent that in any way? No, I didn't think so, though there would have been a period when I wouldn't have acknowledged it to others. All right, it would okay. Have been not very cool as an 11, 12 year old to be very obviously a Christian. So I probably would have kept quiet about it. <coughs> okay. Did it, did it just follow naturally that you're brought up with Christian parents, Christian home, going to church, that you would become a Christian? Or was there ever a sort of crisis of faith and, and can I really believe this? Do I want to be committed to this? Did, did these things go through your mind? I, I think it's absolutely inevitable that, uh, for any person who thinks at all. Yes. We will go through a process and that would have happened to me in the early teenage years, 14 through to 16, I guess. Was it, was it a miserable <coughs> time for you? Uh, I think I hit uh, teenage angst quite young, and I, I, it just seemed to me that life was utterly absurd, you know, completely meaningless if there wasn't some purpose behind it and a God who lay behind it. And uh, it seemed to me there were only two options. At the end of the day, I would think the whole thing was completely meaningless, totally absurd, and the absurdist like Cammy who had it right. Mm. or there was purpose there was desire there was a God in which case one had to find out what that was about Mm. and I had this great advantage of being brought up in a Christian home to be able to see what was being said and particularly see what Jesus had to say Uh, and then over a period I guess of about two or three years perhaps two years um, I, I saw really slightly older people for whom the Christian faith was very real it was obvious to me that what they understood about life and what they put into practice in life exhibited an authentic faith and I could see that was attractive so there were two things that came across I guess one, the question of truth is this true but secondly, how do you live by it 
and in these people I saw people who were living by it and then it came to me well if it's true I've got to live by it too Mm. So, so that's a gradual process there's no dramatic revelation of any kind it was a process of thinking things through uh, and, and then essentially making a commitment well that's what my life's got and you're a teenager yeah but you went up to university I did it could be tough at university to be a Christian there's there are a lot of other pursuits and um, uh, you, you know suddenly you're free aren't you the shackles are off you can do as you want and how, how was university life as a Christian well I I played a lot of rugby at university rather than working uh, I only got around to work in the last year or so uh, so in the rugby team there was a, a lot of stick yeah. because one was Christian what's that uh, yes. but in fact underneath it also quite a lot of interest and respect uh, and one recognised that here were people who whilst ostensibly uh, thinking all very funny uh, and having a go at you were actually underneath interested interesting yeah so uh, and so you studied law you know, wait which university uh, it was Oxford and what do you think of Cambridge <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'll make any comments. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I have a daughter who went to Cambridge. Oh, all right. We're a split family. Obviously. Yeah, well, you, d- you don't always get the first option, do you? It's, uh... <laughs> 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 all right, so you went to Oxford and straight into what? Did you train to be a barrister? No, I, in fact, I, I went off to be a solicitor initially and I practiced as a solicitor in a big city firm for about three years. Uh, I was a bit slow in recognising that really my interest lay in the courts, and then I changed over and, I, and became a barrister, uh, and uh, did that until I finally got a phone call saying, "Come and see me. Would you like to be a judge?" And that must be quite a significant moment in your life to get that sort of phone call. Well, it's the did you cartwheel, did cartwheel around the room, or <laughs> well, in, in those days you didn't apply. These days you have to apply. Oh, do you? Okay. In those those days, uh, they just picture. So, mm. We want you. Uh, so one morning, I'm sitting in chambers, ostensibly working, uh, and my clerk and says, um, "The Lord Chancellor wants to see you this afternoon." So you realise that you're either going to be disbarred for some terrible <laughs> misdemeanour, or he may be talking in what some would call promotion. So I had a couple of hours to talk to my wife and say, is this a good idea for your visit? Uh, and uh, then went to see him and said, yes. Now, there are whole issues, aren't there, with regard to justice, because we're, we're going to think, obviously, about God being a God of love. <laughs> Do you feel it's right for a human being to... I don't know, impose a penalty or punishment on somebody else? Well, yes, otherwise I couldn't... I know, but how do you... you know, know. <laughs> well, I don't know, some people do that anyway. Uh, but, um, but how do you justify that as a Christian thinking this through? Well, society has plainly got to have law. It's got to have sanctions. Uh, and uh, uh, as a judge, one is given responsibility by society... Uh, to make the sanctions work and to find the right sanction for the uh, appropriate offence and uh, as a Christian one does that in a sense as God's agent doesn't mean I'm any different from the criminal because I get things wrong and so on Uh, so I'm not condemning the individual uh, as a person but I am uh, dealing with what they've done that's wrong and meeting out justice in that context justice is trying to put things right so far as you can 
uh, and where you're talking about crime, you're trying to put things right from the perspective of the victim and from the perspective of society. Uh, and punishment is the only way you can get that sense of equivalence. It's interesting because talking to the average punter about God, there's a strange sort of notion that God is a very severe God to people here on earth and if you follow him God's going to be down on you like a ton of bricks and life will be tough and miserable but then a view of God that sort of sees him as very lenient in judgment oh he let us all in you know everybody will be alright actually I, I would argue that the opposite is exactly the truth but that's how people see it now God being a God of justice and judgment what's your thinking about this do you are you happy with that? Can you can you can you understand how God can be absolutely a God of love and a God of justice and judgment as well? Yes, I think. And, and how do you reconcile the two? Well, my favourite story that Jesus told is the one in Luke's Gospel about the bad judge. Yes. You know, oh, I know it very well. <laughs> yes. uh, and, and you remember the story goes like this: there's there's a widow yes. in a town who's being cheated, uh, and she wants to get justice, get things put right and she goes off to see the judge and he won't have anything on God because he's cynical, he's world weary he's bitter, he doesn't care about truth, he doesn't care about justice he's just waiting to take up his index and pension <laughs> not much reduced that might say but at all this he does nothing but she keeps coming to him and saying give me justice do right mm. and he gets so fed up that in the end world weary and cynical and hard bitten though he is he does exactly that he listens to her and he gives her justice and Jesus says if that's what a cynical world weary corrupt judge does the one thing you'll be certain of is that a just and right God will do justice in the end and of course it would be wholly unloving to the widow for justice not to be done and in society as a whole therefore justice is an absolute perception uh, and if God didn't do justice at the end we'd all think there was something wrong with God and what would you think of a God who either saw no difference between right and wrong or did nothing about it uh, and so in the end I think we all recognise naturally that justice has to be done and it's going to be done right it's got to be someone who really does get it right we can get it all wrong as human judges and juries and so on but God will get it 100% right and that's actually a great comfort mm, it is very much the system they get things wrong here God will get it right because of course we have the story of Pontius Pilate as well who, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, a judge who certainly got it wrong um, but I'd like to ask you about something else if I may um the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I know you've studied this uh, as a lawyer and you've sifted through the, the evidence. It, it's fundamental, really, to Christian belief that Jesus died, was buried, and three days later bodily rose from the dead. And I think it'd be very easy just to dismiss this as always a nice notion, but really there's no historical evidence. But you've studied it and that wouldn't be your conclusion at all, would it? No, I, I think anyone who's prepared to, to treat the documents, the New Testament documents, as some sort of historical record, without starting from the position that they are either make-believe or wholly accurate. If you treat them as historical documents and look at them, then you have to come to a conclusion. What do they actually show? Uh, and you've got to explain how it is that uh, everybody, by everybody at the time, 
accepted the tomb was empty. That's the starting point. Uh, the story, the only story that those who opposed Jesus could come up with was the disciples stole the body. So you're actually only left with two options. Either that, or he rose from the dead as he said. However, unlikely and improbable, one starts off by thinking the resurrection is. When you look at the alternative, the only coherent explanation, I think, looking at the evidence, is the resurrection of Jesus. He did what he said he was going to do. Uh, and the witnesses to it, and this is what evidence is, it's from people who were there and saw at the time, these are reliable witnesses for whom truth was the highest value, not people who you would look at and say, well, there are people who are likely to tell stories and lie. They weren't that kind of people. They saw Jesus and his teaching as fundamental, of huge importance. Uh, they saw truth as being vital. And then they went on to base their own lives on the fact they had risen and were prepared to die for that truth too. So I think if you look at the thing and say, now what's the most logical, rational, coherent explanation that's in tune with all facts? That's where you get to. So if you were presented in a court of law, the evidence for the resurrection, your verdict would be, yes, he did bodily rise from the dead. Well, that would be my conclusion. And it would be that of a, a historian who looked at the documents. It's not just a lawyer's view. I think historians, it's the same sort of exercise they're involved with. And anybody, I think, who approaches this uh, from an objective standpoint can come to that conclusion. But, but the problem, I think, in the end is, is not ultimately an intellectual problem. It, it's a problem of the will. Do people want to believe or not? Uh, and that's the reality, because if you are going to accept that as true, then you have to take the next step, which is, I guess, what I did as a 15, 16-year-old. I've got to live by it, and that's costly, because it means no longer is your life your own, but your life is now belonging to Christ. Mm. And that's tough. It is tough. Uh, and the thing I've seen as I've grown older is it's increasingly hard as you get older for people to change their way of thinking and, and to, to accept and say yes I need to bow the knee I need to accept that God is God and I must live my life by reference to him that Jesus is Lord and therefore I must serve him that's a tough decision to make from a personal standpoint because it involves a complete realignment of all your attitudes in life mm. and we all get bound by habits don't we we do um, Jeremy just quickly um, so you became a Christian as a teenager what difference does being a Christian what, what difference has it made to you as a husband and as a father and a family man do you think well if you ask my wife she'd say I was a very poor husband <laughs> a different view from that which I might give you um, but fundamentally uh, once, uh, I, I try to live my life in a way that's going to honour God in the context of work, in the context of my family life, uh, towards my wife, towards my children, and now my many eight grandchildren, grandchildren. <laughs> of whom I'm enormously proud. Mm. Uh, uh, so They're not going to be lawyers, are they? I don't think any <laughs> single one of them is likely to be. My children. Are. <laughs> All right. Uh, there's a possibility that one or two of the grandchildren might go that way. Right. I can see. They might have the <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but who knows? Yeah, who knows, yes. And, and what, the difference that being a Christian made to you as a barrister and then as a High Court judge? Well, the, the difference, I think, is one of motivation more than anything else. Um, I don't think there would be many decisions that would be different if I wasn't a Christian. 
decisions that I actually make because you apply the law as it is. Uh, there be one or two where it might have made some difference, um, uh, but most uh, a good lawyers, a good lawyer, uh, and you apply the law. But what I'm trying to do is something rather different because I'm trying to please God in what I'm doing. I'm trying to serve Him. I'm trying to honour Him. Uh, and I try to do justice because it makes sense to do justice because there's a God of justice so I have a different motivation from all my fellow judges who are probably just as good as judges much better some of them uh, undoubtedly uh, but where's the logic of it from their point of view why does justice matter if there's no God at all why does right and wrong matter the whole thing is just chance it's all absurd we're back to that same that I started out with even as a 14 year old doesn't look to me any different now no do, do you did you pray about oh, what sentence should I give this this character did you <coughs> yes, yes. when I went to court I would pray for uh, everybody in court I prayed for the barristers who appeared in front of me for the other lawyers in court for the witnesses um, for the accused uh, for the litigious parties, whatever it is, uh, and I would pray that um, I would uh, honour God in the way uh, I acted in court, and that His will, justice, would be done at the end of the day, and that involved getting sentencing right, getting decisions right, and uh, you know I need all the help I can get, mm. and so to to know that I could pray and ask for wisdom was great comfort. And Jeremy, um, did you watch? Judge John Deeds or Law and Order UK? <laughs> I occasionally do watch John Deeds for the fun of it. And, and is it accurate? <laughs> no. <laughs> but, but, he, but he did as good. It, I mean, it's an oddity, isn't it? There's John Deeds. I mean, he is the uh, most reprobate of characters. In some respect, he sleeps with barristers, he sleeps with witnesses. I mean, you know, nowhere to draw the line. But the one thing that came across with him was that he was desperate to do justice. Huh. And, and that actually did us good, apart from the fact that all the middle-aged women loved him because he was a <laughs> And most of us aren't. <laughs> and Lord Order UK? I've never seen You've that. never watched no. it, okay. Um, last question. Jeremy, I, I think we can guess what your answer is going to be, but, but have you ever regretted putting your trust in Christ and seeking to follow him? I think there would have been a point where I would have said, this is difficult, this is costly. Mm. Uh, but the reality is that whenever that thought crossed one's mind, I would say that there's just no other option, there's no other sensible way to go. If this is true, then that's the way it has to be. Mm. Uh, and the reality is that whatever the cost, um, the satisfaction, the um, peace, I suppose you might say, that comes from doing what you know to be right and following Jesus, that's, uh, that's something I've never regretted. Mm, wonderful. Oh, just one other thing. Your story is in this city, city life, so if, um, <laughs> if somebody came and asked for an autograph... No. <laughs> the, the value of the book would go down <laughs> about 10p. <laughs> yes, yes, of course. All the other chapters are very good. Let's <laughs> show our appreciation, shall we? Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed interviewing Jeremy, I must say. But I, there was one question I meant to ask and it slipped my mind. 
was going to ask what he thought of Judge Judy. Do you ever watch Judge Judy? <laughs> yes. I love watching Judge Judy. Do you enjoy it as well? A huge fan. Huge fan. There we are. Have you ever watched it, Jeremy? No. Uh, <laughs> I think the phrase is, get a life. Uh, but anyway, there we are. Um, thanks so much for coming tonight. On Thursday, I think it is, I'm going to be doing a similar interview, but it's not here, is it? It's elsewhere. They'll tell you more about it. And I'm going to be interviewing Debbie Flood, who's a Yorkshire girl. I knew you'd all love that. And um, uh, uh, she's twice got a silver in the Olympics. The first time, absolutely elated. The second time, just dreadfully disappointed because she wanted the gold. And it's quite, it, it's quite fascinating, you know, the success and failure, etc. Um, it, it, I've interviewed her many, many times, but in the past I used to ask for a rowing machine and I'd get her to challenge men. <laughs> and um, it all went very well, time after time after time. There was one young guy came up and left her standing, so I thought, oh, we'll, we'll leave it from now on. I think she's, well, she's not really growing older, but uh, he was a tough guy. But anyway, that's Thursday. We'd love to see you on, on Thursday. But I just want to round off, really, by going back to that Bible passage, if I may. And I'm going to be a little bit naughty. I'm going to introduce you to some theological words. And uh, some of them, you may, you may think, oh, wow, do we have to know these? Well, of course, in every sphere of life, there is uh, vocabulary that is exclusive to to um, to that realm. And I'm going to introduce you to, to one or two words. And it's all to do with that phrase, God is love. We've all heard it, haven't we? God is love. When I, when I was much younger, I used to teach Sunday school in a, in a wooden hut that was a sort of church. And um, uh, <laughs> at the front of this wooden hut, they had in polystyrene tiles the letters G-O-D-I-S-L-O-V-E. But there was always one falling down. So you, it, it's left an indelible impression in my mind. So you'd see, odd is love, or God is of or God eat love, and etc. It was always like that. But nevertheless, God is love. We are familiar with it. But I think actually, if we stop to reflect a little, we'd, we'd all suddenly realise that actually, those words put together like that are quite revolutionary because millions live with the fear that God is not a God of love, but a vindictive, capricious, spiteful, vengeful, unpredictable sort of God. And they, they wonder what God will be like. And yet, God is love, spelled out in, in 1 John. But actually, you can read anywhere in the Bible. And yes, we see sometimes God is judging sin. But nevertheless, through it all, permeating the whole of the Bible, the idea that God is a God of love. And really, it gives four evidences uh, for God being a God of love in the, in the passage that we read. Well, I say in the passage. The first evidence I, I, I want to sort of hang on the word revelation in that God has revealed himself as a God of love. We, we've all come across people who've said things like, well, my idea of God is... And away they go. But if that's how we define God, you know, there'd be eight billion gods, wouldn't there? Because we'd all come up with a slightly different definition. What really matters is what God has revealed to us about himself. And through the written word, the Bible, and the living word, Jesus, Christians say, God has revealed himself to be a God of love. Now, of course, he's told us many other things about himself. The Bible teaches there is one God. And this one God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
three persons in the Godhead. That God is infinite and eternal. That God is a spirit. You can't put him in a cage and analyse him. But he's a spirit and God, and God knows all things and can do all things. And he's everywhere. He never changes. A God who's, well the word is holy. Absolutely spotless and loving. And just. And a God who's come into our world. So God has revealed many things about himself. But God, a God of love. The trouble with human love is it... it, it, it it, it, you know, it fades, doesn't it? And um, sometimes it can blow hot and other times cold and it can be unpredictable. God's not like that. It's a consistent love, an eternal love that's absolutely reliable. So God never, as it were, gets out of the wrong side of the bed and he's in a bad mood all day. God is a God of love. So Christians believe that God is love because of revelation. But there's a second reason. And we get it in the passage and... Um, uh, later on if you want to look up the Bible I'm going to give you a portion of the Bible if you'd like later on but this is found in 1 John chapter 4 and, and we read this we have seen and testified that the Father sent the Son as Saviour of the world and we also read in this the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten into, Son into the world that we might live through him the, the word here is incarnation that God has given us a revelation, but he's gone beyond that. God has become the incarnate God. The God who is, who, let's be honest, had every reason, every right, I suppose, to wash his hands of this world, which is in rebellion against him. This God has come into our world. This God has clothed himself in humanity. This God well, let me put it like this, is big enough to have become small. The infinite God becomes a tiny little baby laid in a manger in Bethlehem. In fact, nine months earlier, an infinitesimally minute fetus implanted in a virgin mother's womb. And this is God stepping into the arena of humanity? And why? Well, he's demonstrating to us that he's a God of love. He's manifested himself to us in that he's come into our world. And, and this is absolutely unique. There are many features about Christianity which are totally unique. But the idea that God would, would bother with us and come for us. I, I was doing a week like this a few years ago in Glasgow, but it was, it was coming up to Christmas. And I was in a church in, which was pretty much central Glasgow and um, a, a little like here I arrived on the Sunday night and you know I get my itinerary you're going here you're speaking there etc etc but they had in the itinerary at 10 o'clock on Thursday night soup run but my name wasn't there and um, I, I said oh why aren't I you know attached to soup run and they, they said in true blunt Scottish fashion they said Roger you need your beauty sleep and uh, we don't get back till half past three and we'd rather I said no no I'd really like to go if you don't mind and I joined a man, and I'm not making up this name, honestly, a man called Wally. That was his name. And um, apparently he's one of Glasgow's most successful and well-known businessmen. Multimillionaire and a member of this church. Now, when I was there, they told me that every Thursday night for the last 13 years, with no exceptions, he had led a group from the church on this soup run. They told me if he goes on holiday, wherever it is in the world, he comes back for Thursday night. And if Christmas Day is on a Thursday night, he still does the soup run. So I was joining Wally and a group of others. He got a minibus and we went out at 10 o'clock 
um, on this December evening. And um, we first of all went to some men's hostels. And uh, I remember we sang one or two carols and somebody or other um, gave a little sort of Christmas message. And then we had um, woolen hats or mittens and some hot chocolate and sandwiches that we gave to all the men. And, and that was it. We went to one or two like this. And then after we'd done the men's hostels, we went to the motorway and the intersections. And under the intersections were people, well, I suppose we say now living in cardboard city, living rough, homeless men. And uh, Wally and these others from the church knew exactly where these guys would be and we went up to them, we gave them the Christmas gifts had a little word with them and, and we continued like this till about half past one in the morning then we went back into the centre of, of Glasgow to the red light area parked the car there and within, or the, the minibus there within minutes the, the minibus was surrounded by prostitutes and pimps and police they were all around like this and of course every Thursday night they were going there so they all knew half past one that's the time to go and we gave them all the gifts etc and I said to the, um, the minister of the church Craig Dyer at the time I said Craig we've got to preach to them and he said Roger it's half past one in the morning you can't have an open air meeting uh, I said oh I'm sure we can and we stood on a little wall and we, we had a little Christmas service for them there and we carried on till just gone three and it was coming to the end but Wally said, there's just one more man I want to go and see. And it left a great impression on me because we went back into the centre of Glasgow near a big department store and stopped the minibus. I said, oh, can I come with you, you see? And, and Wally went by himself, just me shadowing him, and went down a slope and there was a, a grate in the pavement next to the department store where central heating fumes would come out. Of course, terribly polluted, but... There was a man just lying there, intoxicated. And while he went up to him, and he gently shook him, and he said, Jock, Jock, it's Wally. Jock, it's Wally. But Jock was so drunk, he really, he wasn't with it at all. So, Wally then, remember who he is, this successful, wealthy businessman who could have just lived his own life, not bothered with anybody else. He lay down next to him, face to face. And he just said, Jock, it's Wally. I've got some gifts for you. And he opened his eyes a little bit. He said, oh, Jock, God doesn't want you to live like this. He's got something so much better. And he spoke to him a little bit about the Lord Jesus. And he pushed the, the woolen hat into his pocket and the sandwiches. And he helped him with the, the hot chocolates. And, and we left. And I thought, do you know tiny little picture really of what Christmas was all about the incarnation God coming into our world in the person of Jesus and sometimes you think all that's gone on in Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan and, and let's face it you know the streets of our big cities in recent weeks and the tragedies that have hit the headlines and you think is God really a God of love? And, and once in a while we hear of something sad happening, a child dying, or, well, you, you, you can list them in. Is God really a God of love? Well, he's revealed himself as such. And actually, coming into the world, the incarnation testifies to the fact, yeah, God loves this world. But then, there's a third reason and again it's found in the passage and I deliberately chose to read from this particular translation because some of the more modern ones slightly change the word because it's not a word we use 
But this one tries to keep as much as it can to the original, so it puts in a, an old-fashioned theological word. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And it's that word, propitiation. Is that a demonstration of God's love? Well, what does it mean? If an attribute of God is that he is loving and just and holy, is it right that God could ever be angry? It's not an attribute of God to say he's angry, but is it right that God would ever be angry? Not in a losing your temper sort of anger. But think again of, of Syria. When, when God sees everything that has happened in Damascus and Aleppo and has God the right to be angry? Uh, about three, four years ago, I was watching late night television. Sky News at midnight. Now, whether they'd shown this earlier, I don't know. But at midnight, they showed it. And it was at a distance. But they, saw, they showed ISIS crucifying children. And it turned my stomach to see it. It was at a distance. And I just thought, this is horrendous. Has God the right to be angry? And I don't want to tread on anything political at all, but think for a moment. Today, in England and Wales, 500 unborn babies have been aborted. Now, God's the giver of life. Has God the right to be angry? But then, let's be honest, you know, we've heard a high court judge today say that he doesn't get it all right. And here's a, a, if you want a Christian minister of swords, uh, I certainly don't get it right. And, and when you look in the mirror in the morning, do you get it right? I, I think we all know we're not the men, the women that we were created to be. We're, we're not the people God intended us to be. There's something gone wrong. And we think, we speak, we do wrong things, don't we, all of us? And some of the things I should do, I don't do. I know I'm, I, I'm not the man that... God wants me to be, has God the right to be angry at some of the things I've got involved with or said or done? And, and yet he loves me. So a God who is just and must, as we heard from Jeremy, must have a penalty for wrongdoing, for sin. What does he do if he loves us? The word propitiation means that when Jesus was dying on the cross, and he was born to die, we're not, we're born to live and do this, go here, etc. When Jesus was on the cross, God's anger against sin was carried by Jesus. So all that is rotten and wrong about me was laid on Jesus. And God's justice was focused on Jesus. About four or five years ago, my youngest son got married in Dorset. And so the whole family sort of descends on Dorset for um, a day or two early. And you've got grandchildren <coughs> and grandsons. You're trying to entertain them. We went to the Fleet Air Arm Museum just outside Taunton. I don't know if you've ever been. It's worth going to see. And Concorde is there. The prototype Concorde. So I can say, I have been on Concorde. We didn't travel very far, but anyway, I went up the steps, I walked along, came down, I've been on Concorde. And I, when I go to museums, which I enjoy, I love London for all your galleries and museums, etc. But um, I, um, I don't particularly read all the inscriptions and the, you know, it, it's a bit boring for me. But I did, I, do, I looked at Concorde, and next to the conical nozzle, 
at the front. Can you can you remember it? Which used to dip and rise, etc. There was an explanation about its function. It it it's designed to pierce the atmosphere and to take all the friction, all the heat, onto itself to protect the rest of the plane. So that conical nozzle takes the fire, the heat, so that everything else is kept safe. Do you know what it's called? The propitiator. Now, I suspect some theologian must have been involved with the naming of that, that piece of aeronautic equipment. But, but there we are, the propitiator. It took the fire on itself to protect. And when the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross, in, and, and I just find it horrendous what he physically suffered, and the emotion of losing those friends who once forsook everything to follow him, now forsook him and fled and denied him, sold him, etc., scattered like sheep. But the spiritual suffering that he who was the pure son of God, who'd been at one with his father throughout the eons of eternity past, is hanging there, carrying on himself the weight of the world's sin. And he did it because he loved us. So the Bible says things like that God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. So he loved us. And he gave himself for us. And when Jesus died paying for our wrongdoing, he was dying so that we could be forgiven. So that that which cuts us off from God and would keep us out of heaven and, let's be honest, would condemn us to hell that sin could be dealt with, forgiven, removed, and we might be reconciled to God. I think that's an amazing thing. So if ever I'm wondering, does God really love me? Oh, well, he's revealed himself as a God of love. More than that, he came into our world, the incarnation. Oh, but more than that, propitiation. He loved me and gave himself for me. But that little passage has one other reason. And this is where it becomes very personal. Because... We, we, we see it, I've read it already, and we have seen and testified. The Father has sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. Verse 14 of 1 John chapter 4. When a person comes to a, a moment in their life, and it may be gradually as we heard from Jeremy, but when a person comes to that time in their lives, when they recognise, okay, I have done wrong, and that has cut me off from God, but I need forgiveness. And yet Jesus has died for me. And of course, we go much further, and Jeremy's already spoken about this. He rose from the dead. He defeated death. He, the grave where once his body lay is empty, and he's risen. When they come to realize he loved me, he died for me, he was buried, he rose from the dead, and he can save me? To save means to be forgiven, to be reconciled to God. He can save me? And they asked Jesus to become their Lord and Saviour. Do you know it in the most wonderful way? He becomes real and precious. Not just the Saviour of the world, but my Saviour. So I know God. And, and I can speak with God in prayer. It's not just as it were crossing my fingers and hoping for the best. I can, I can read the Bible and, and God teaches me and instructs me. I can be part of a, a church community and I find that... Actually, God is teaching me through others and we serve together, we worship together and we, we, we want to live, yes, for each other, but we want to live for the Lord. And, and then when death comes, and, and we know it's going to come, we, we, we always you know, think, oh, it'd be a long way away, but, but when death comes, we can be absolutely certain that to be absent from the body 
as the Bible puts it, is to be present with the Lord. I'm going to be with him. Not because I've done anything good, but well, the Bible teaches that heaven is not a reward. Heaven is a gift which Jesus purchased and offers to lost humanity. I think it's wonderful. I sometimes interview a man called David Hamilton. He, um, when he was a youngster in Belfast, he was badly treated by, as it happens, because he's a, he's gonna, he was a quote-unquote Protestant, though he never went to church, but he was badly treated by some Roman Catholic boys, and he became bitter against them, and eventually he joined the UVF, a Northern Irish terrorist organisation. And within a few years, he was sent on missions to murder. He never says how many people he did murder, but I, I've tried, because I've interviewed him several times, I think probably two policemen and one other, but I'm not certain. He, he's a tough guy, just to illustrate how tough he is. He's now in his late 50s, but he recently had the bottom part of his leg amputated without anaesthetic. He said to the doctor, I don't want any anaesthetic, just do it. Um, anyway... Um, is that crazy or is that courageous? I'm not sure. Crazy, yes, I think so. But so, tough, tough guy. How he became a Christian in the Mays prison is a story that um, is another story. It's fascinating. But interestingly, one of the things he did, when he, he was a voracious reader. And even today, he reads four hours every day, just loves books and he pours through them. But in prison, of course, he read and read and read. But one of the other things was he tattooed himself. So he'd get ink and he'd get needles and all over his body he's got tattoos. Down his right arm he had a naked woman tattooed. But then he became a Christian. What do you do if you've got a naked woman tattooed down your right arm? He, be, he, 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 he tattooed a bikini on her and he made her decent. Eventually he actually turned it into a dragon but that's a different matter. But, now, you, you may not believe this story, but this is what he says, and I can believe it, but you may not. But even if you don't, here's the metaphor of it. On the palm of his right hand, he had the letters S-E-X. He became a Christian. Every time he, sh- he put his hand out to shake hands, he just felt embarrassed. So he prayed. God, what do I do with this tattoo? Do I just turn it into a big blue splurge? What, what do I do with it? And two or three days later, he, this is his story, he was there with a line of other prisoners going to the sink to wash and shave. And he filled the sink up with water, he put his hands in the sink, and that tattoo, intact, just floated to the surface. He pulled the plug, and down the plug hole it went. And the right hand, you can look at it, I just looked at it, there's no sign that he ever had a tattoo there. All the other tattoos remain. But that one just went. Now, whether you believe that or not, it's up to you. But the metaphor that God saved and our sins, as it were, washed down the plug hole, our sins just dealt with. To be able to put your head on your pillow at night and know that you're right with God. If you never wake up again, you're ready to meet him because all that would condemn you has been dealt with. Or to wake up in the morning and think, all right, I'm in a relationship with God and I'm going to live this day for and with God the Lord Jesus it's a wonderful thing and to know that eventually when people say have you heard the news she's gone he's gone yeah but we know where they've gone not because they were good enough but because all that would keep them out of heaven has been dealt with salvation the great demonstration 
of the love of God. I suspect my time has gone. And you probably realise when God created me, he over-oiled my jaws. And it, even, I even sleep talk. So, uh, uh, But uh, it's time I finish. But I just want to say this, with all the earnestness of my heart, if you've never come to that moment in your life where you've experienced the love of God in a personal way, I really would urge you to respond to it. And it I was talking to somebody earlier today, and um, um, I asked about, you know, getting married. And he said, oh, there is such a person. But she said, no. That's very painful, isn't it? And to say no to a God who loves, has revealed himself as a loving God, has come into our world, has died on the cross for us, and offers salvation. To my mind, it doesn't make sense. A God who loves you as well as me. And a God who's willing to start all over again with you. And bring you into a relationship with himself that goes throughout life and then, yes, through death and into eternity. How do you respond to the love of God? It's coming to that very definite decision where you say, with God's help, I'll turn from that which is wrong. And I will trust Jesus who died for me and rose from the dead to forgive me. I'm going to ask him to become my Lord and my Saviour. I too was a teenager on the holiday in the Middle East. And I met some missionaries who ran a Christian hospital in Beirut. And one of them, after a game of tennis, he was too old to play tennis. He was about 40. But anyway, after a game of tennis, he... um, he, he chatted to me about the gospel and he explained how Jesus had died for me. And I thought, wow, if he loved me enough to die for me, I want to ask him to forgive me. And I prayed that day a prayer. Lord Jesus, please forgive me. And would you take over my life and become my Lord and Saviour? And it was the hinge which changed the whole direction of my life. I came to experience for the first time the love of God. And as the years have unfolded, really he's become more and more and more precious to me.